Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Nini, your host for The Wildlife, and author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensic Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species, and also author of Orangutan Houdini, a children's picture book that tells the true story of one very special ape. Today on The Wildlife, you'll hear my conversation with teen activist Rhiannon Tomtishin. She and her friend, Madison Vorva, were just 11 years old when, in 2007, they discovered their shared passion of orangutans. Together, the two decided to earn their Girl Scout Bronze Award, an award that required the girls to raise awareness within their community about an issue they were passionate about, and they chose to focus on orangutans. To earn their Bronze Award, they educated youth groups within their community about the plight of the orangutan and their rainforest home. After researching the harmful impacts of palm oil plantations on people, the animals, and environment of Indonesia, they became even more passionate and started checking products that they consumed every day to see which ones contained palm oil. To their dismay, they discovered that palm oil was an ingredient in Girl Scout cookies. As Girl Scouts, they felt a duty to bring this issue to the attention of the organization and convince them to make their cookies rainforest safe. They started numerous campaigns to raise awareness about this issue, including a petition, which was signed by Dr. Jane Goodall, a letter-writing campaign, and a puzzle piece campaign that allowed past and present Girl Scouts to decorate puzzle pieces with why they believed it was important for Girl Scout cookies to be rainforest safe. Since then, the girls have been featured on major media outlets and have won numerous awards for their activism, including the Brower Youth Award and the United Nations Forest Heroes Award. When I spoke with Rhiannon, I was inspired by how simple actions can have a big impact. Hopefully, you will be too. Now, here's my conversation with Rhiannon Tomtishan. What got you interested in orangutans? Maddie and I met in sixth grade. Um, we were playing basketball on the same team in school and realized that we were both Girl Scouts. And so one of the things that you can do as a Girl Scout of that age is earn your Girl Scout Bronze Award. And you can just pick any issue that you're passionate about and then spend 40 hours doing a service project on that issue. And Maddie and I both shared the same hero, Dr. Jane Goodall. And so as we were looking at her incredible work with the chimpanzees, we started researching other great apes and discovered that the orangutan is critically endangered. And so we took the orangutan as our starting point for our bronze award, and we did 40 hours raising awareness within our local community about the issues that they're facing and their habitat destruction in Southeast Asia. And that was really the spark that lit it. As soon as we started learning about this issue, we knew that it wasn't something we could just be done with after this one project. We wanted to continue advocating for the species. When you were said you were raising awareness in the local communities, what were you what were you doing? The biggest thing that we did was put together a presentation. And so we just had this homemade poster board and we went around and talked to different classrooms and Girl Scout groups about this issue. So we talked to my brother's fourth grade classroom. We talked to our sixth grade classroom. We went and talked to Girl Scout troops and a missionette group, which is kind of similar to Girl Scouts. And basically what we were doing is teaching them about the orangutan and then telling them why the orangutan is endangered and how they, in their local Michigan community, can help protect the orangutan thousands of miles away on the other side of the world. How could they help? Well, the three main reasons that orangutans are endangered, so I assume you've started researching, you know a lot about this, is pet trade, which we said, you know, it's kind of hard for you in Ann Arbor maybe to affect the illegal pet trade since a lot of that's happening in other countries around the world. 
um, and then Illegal Logging and Palm Oil Production. And Palm Oil Production was the one that we really focused on because that's such a global issue. Even though the palm oil is being produced in Southeast Asia and it's impacting the orangutans in the forests and the communities there, that ingredient is being used in products all around the world. So regardless of whether you're a consumer in the United States or France or China, you're using products that contain palm oil. And so you have the ability to use your voice as a consumer to contact those companies and encourage them to switch to better sources. So what we're doing is encouraging kids our age to check the ingredients labels for everything that they were eating and then write a letter to the companies that were producing their favorite products that they found palm oil. So whether that was Oreos or Kit Kat or Girl Scout cookies, as we later figured out, um, we just wanted to tell them that their voice did mean something. And so by contacting the company, the company would slowly start to also gain awareness about this issue and hopefully take steps to uh, switch their sourcing. And what was the reaction? It was extremely positive, I have to say. Um, I mean, you're talking about adorable animals to little children, and it's pretty hard <laughs> to go wrong with that. Um, but I think it was it was interesting to see, and it's been interesting. I think at the time when we first started, we didn't really see the impact that our presentations were having because, you know, we were the same age as the people that we were talking to, and it's kind of hard to see um, sort of what impact you have on them. But as we've gotten older and as, as we've continued to speak to youth, I think it's really interesting to see kids walk out of a presentation with kind of a spark in their eye. And you can see that they're kind of turning this over in their head, like, okay, well, what products do I use that contain palm oil? You know, how many letters can I write? Can I have my friends and family write letters? Or even if they're not thinking about palm oil, it's interesting to talk to and to hear from kids who have listened to our presentation and then said, okay, well, maybe orangutan part my passion, but protecting the wolf are or, you know, reducing consumption of plastics is. And so then they're thinking about, okay, well, if they use these techniques, what can I do to affect change on this particular issue that I am passionate about? How did you start looking at the palm oil issue? Because it's not actually that easy because the ingredient list often doesn't include palm oil, or if it does, it's like disguised. It doesn't say palm oil. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where we started was just checking products for palm oil and palm kernel oil. Um, because of those, those are the two easiest names to recognize, and both of those, you know, are coming from the oil palm plant. Um, and as we sort of developed in our knowledge of this issue, we, that's, our definition of palm oil has come to include all the derivatives that are made from palm oil. And that gets really tricky with cosmetics because, for example, sodium lauryl sulfate is made from palm oil. So, you know, you have to memorize this huge list of names, and even then, you can't tell when you look at a product necessarily if one of their derivatives comes from palm oil or possibly coconut oil because it can be made from both. And so I think kind of the nuances of that is something that we're still struggling with and a lot of organizations are still struggling with. But at least where we started when we were 11 years old was saying, check for palm oil, check for palm kernel oil. And so we wrote letters to our favorite companies. I remember <laughs> I'm a really big fan of Milano's. So I wrote to, you know, that company and said, hi, I really like your products, but they use palm oil. I just learned about this. I'd prefer that you sort of switch your policy so that you aren't contributing to these issues. And um, one of the most interesting things that we did when we were first getting started, um, we organized a letter writing drive among our seventh grade. Uh, we have something called advisories. So our grades divided up into six or seven smaller groups that meet once a week. And so we had all of the kids in each advisory write a letter to a company. And we gave them the addresses and we gave them the information and we took all the letters and mailed them. <laughs> and so we got... We had like 80 kids in our grade, and I think we mailed out somewhere over 100 letters. And we just received so many form responses back from these companies. And a lot of them would actually send coupons, like, oh, thank you for complaining about Kit Kat. Here's a, 
here's a coupon to go buy another Kit Kat kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so that was discouraging at first, but I think it was a really important tool for like us to learn and for our peers to learn how to write that letter. And I think also I would like to believe that as the number of these letters have increased over the years, companies have taken notice because now when you write to a company about palm oil, you don't get the generic like, oh, thank you for your complaint. We've taken it into consideration. Here's a coupon thing. You actually get something more specifically addressing the palm oil issue. And so I think that's a really interesting sign of progress that's being made. Oh, that's interesting. You said most of them were form letters. Were there any nasty ones, or were there any, uh, <laughs> or were there any really thoughtful responses? And I'm distressed to learn that Milano's have pound. Oh, I know that was a hard one for me. Um, actually, it's funny because I was just I have this huge box in my room of papers and pictures from over the years, and I was just starting to sort through it this morning. Um, and I actually have some of the responses from the companies from when we did that letter writing drive. Gosh, it was almost six years ago now. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're not nasty because they're not personalized at all. So I guess they're neither thoughtful nor nasty. They're just very basic, like, we're acknowledging your letter. Thank you. Continue to support our product type thing. And I think actually, interestingly, um, Kellogg was one of the first companies when we received letters back that um, did address palm oil specifically. And so at that time... They were members of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, and they were kind of pursuing sustainable palm oil, palm oil through that avenue. Um, and it's interesting, I guess, that, you know, they were kind of leaders back then, even if they weren't doing necessarily the best thing, you know, that they were at least trying. And now, obviously, um, they've made a lot of progress on this issue, which is really impressive. So you're, you've gotten a lot of press for the issue related to Girl Scout cookies. Can you talk about that? How did you recognize the Girl Scout cookie connection? <laughs> so like I said, we had started this project for a Girl Scout Bronze Award. And once we made the Palmo connection, I think we realized that that was the avenue that we were going to be able to affect the most change through. And so we started checking everything for palm oil, everything in our pantries. We would kind of obsessively go through our friends' lunch boxes at lunch in school and things like that. And it was Girl Scout cookie season, and so it had just become habit to check everything for palm oil at that point. And we flipped over a box of Girl Scout cookies and realized that palm oil and palm kernel oil were on the label. And I think that was a really shocking moment for us because we had grown up through Girl Scouting. We had started this project through Girl Scouting. Um, you know, we had been taught environmental stewardship. Part of the Girl Scout law includes to make the world a better place. And so we naively, as 11-year-olds, thought that this was going to be a really easy fix. We thought that maybe the Girl Scouts didn't realize the environmental and social impacts of palm oil, and so we just sent one email, and they fixed the problem. Um, and we did send that one email, and it's kind of funny going back over the chain because the response was not extremely positive from the Girl Scouts, you know, eight years ago when we first brought this to their attention. But we decided that since that one email didn't work, we were going to continue our efforts, and we were going to amplify our voice and bring in more consumers and more Girl Scouts until the Girl Scouts took notice of this issue and were willing to change the policy. What was the reaction when you did that? Did you get a response back from that one email? Yeah, we did, actually. Um, gosh, I wonder if I could find it. It's a really interesting email chain. It's from a really long time ago. But it was it was a response, and it was from an actual person at the Girl Scouts who we actually later ended up talking to. Um, and basically, their idea was that it was fine, that the palm oil was fine, that you know, we shouldn't be worried about it contributing to these issues kind of thing. Um, and I think in that initial email, one of the things that they had cited was 
the effectiveness of palm oil because of its properties. It's really good ingredient in Girl Scout cookies because palm oil is solid at room temperature. So it acts kind of in place of both butter and the cookie. Um, you know, it's like a shortening to hold the cookie, like, to be uh, pretty solid. And then palm kernel oil is a great glue. And so, like, thin mints and cookies like that where there's a chocolate coating, they use the palm kernel oil as a glue to hold the chocolate onto the cookie. Um, so because of food like science properties that they're they're really important ingredients in the cookies. But the kind of ironic thing is that right when we learned about palm oil, it was really a new ingredient. They had just put palm oil into the cookies because of the whole trans fat um, issue they had removed. Previously, they were using hydrogenated soybean oil. So if we had learned about palm oil just a little bit sooner, we actually would have learned about it before it had even been an ingredient in the cookies. So they, so they didn't want to uh, remove it initially, so they were defending it not at all no not at all they weren't really interested in in removing it and i think also i mean they did respond to the emails but they were not interested in engaging in any sort of meaningful dialogue with us i think part of that was the fact that we were 11 year olds and you know honestly we were still learning about the issue at that point it probably wouldn't have been the most productive or engaging dialogue but we learned about the issue pretty quickly and we pretty quickly realized what we were talking about and it still took us five years after that initial email to ever get any sort of meeting with the executives, like a sit-down meeting to talk about this issue and to talk about the options. Really? So it started, it, what year did it start? 2007? Was that? Yeah, so we started in 2007. That's when we did our um, our bronze award and we started learning about the issue. And we pretty quickly realized about Girl Scout cookies after that and began campaigning within our local community and eventually realized that wasn't enough and expanded to a more national community and through online campaigns, we were able to gather the support of a lot of consumers. But we didn't actually sit down with the Girl Scouts until May of 2011. Wow, that's interesting. And then, so we met with them in May of 2011 for the first time. September of 2011, we sat down with them again. And the next day, they announced their new palm oil policy. So I will, I will give them credit. It did come six months after our initial meeting. Um, but their policy as it stands right now is not effective. It looks really good on paper. It doesn't do anything in practice. Um, I mean, they showed it to us one day before they announced it publicly. So it wasn't really something that was crafted with our input and with our work. It was something that they sort of did separately on their own and they came to us and said, this is our solution. We're pretty much done with this issue now. What is their policy and what is inadequate about it? Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things that they did, and this was their initial way to take action on this issue, was to purchase green palm certificates to offset their use of unsustainable palm oil. And what the green palm certification scheme is, it's actually based on the carbon trading scheme, if you're familiar with that at all. And for every ton of unsustainable palm oil that you buy, you purchase one certificate. The, the, like, the company purchases one certificate. So the Girl Scouts buy a ton of palm oil for cookies. They pay for one certificate. And the money from that certificate goes back to... Um, producers in Indonesia and Malaysia that are using sustainable methods. But it doesn't mean that the palm oil that the Girl Scouts are purchasing is coming from those people. It's not coming from any sort of sustainable plantation. And uh, this very mis misleading green palm logo has now been placed on every single Girl Scout cookie box and every single Girl Scout cookie order form. And it very nicely says green palm sustainability. And so for a lot of consumers, when they saw this logo on the boxes, they said, oh, okay, you know, this issue's resolved, it's done, I can go back to uh, supporting Girl Scout cookies. But the thing is that it's not changing what goes into the box, it's just changing what they put onto it. 
So that was a really frustrating part of their policy. And then the other parts of their policy were uh, to incorporate sustainable palm oil uh, as it becomes available. And that's kind of an interesting, an interesting way of framing it because right now a lot of sustainable palm oil is deemed sustainable by, by the round, round table on sustainable palm oil, which is a collection of growers and governments and consumers of the palm oil and NGOs. But their standards aren't strong enough. They don't take into account things like greenhouse gas emissions from the plantations. They don't protect, protect secondary forests. Um, and there aren't necessarily the correct considerations for erosion and human rights and things like that. So that's what the Girl Scout policy is right now. Um, it's definitely not strong enough. Kellogg and other companies who are recently changing are going the deforestation-free route. And there's actually a very slight nuance between sustainable and deforestation-free, but in practice, it's a really, really big difference. And deforestation-free um, incorporates principles like it being legal, like the land that the palm oil is growing on has to be legally obtained. Um, it does take into account the greenhouse gas emissions, secondary forests, things like that. So that's kind of what we would have, we would have hoped that the Girl Scouts would have chosen and are still hoping that, and they just haven't uh, made that jump yet. So the deforestation-free is what mm-hmm. people should be looking for at this point, the traceable deforestation-free Right. There's actually a set of principles that deforestation-free palm oil incorporates that explains it far better than um, I was able to. But that is what we're encouraging companies to do right now. That's the route that Kellogg took. That's the route that many of these companies that are starting to change their policy are taking. They're moving away from this roundtable on sustainable palm oil, which was kind of just a PR scam, and they're sitting down and actually taking action on this issue in a way that will have a positive impact on the forests and communities of Southeast Asia. And so Kellogg's, um, can you explain, so Kellogg's is one of the bakers for the Girl Scout cookies, is that right? Right, and that's sort of where our first connection to Kellogg's emerged, is that as we were doing research on Girl Scout cookies, we realized that half of them were baked, baked by a company that Kellogg's owns, and the other half is baked by a Canadian company. Um, and because we're from Michigan and Kellogg's is centered right here in Michigan, we kind of thought that was an interesting tie-in. And so in all of our campaigning and things like that, we included Kellogg's. You know, they were receiving these campaign emails and things like that. And then one day we just kind of decided out of the blue to contact the chief sustainability officer of Kellogg and see if we could just come in and speak with her about this issue. And I have to say it was incredible because we emailed her one week, and within the week, we had a response from her. And she said, absolutely, come up, pick a date, we'll meet with you at our headquarters. And it was just a really interesting experience to contrast that with what had happened with the Girl Scouts, because it took us five years to get a meeting with the Girl Scouts, and Kellogg just, like, come up in a week. Wow, um, that's... <laughs> and when was that? When did you first meet with Kellogg's? I think that must have been May of 2012. How did that meeting go? It was really interesting. I have to say that they were a lot more... Um, upfront about the issues that they were facing and their thoughts than the Girl Scouts were. And basically my takeaway from that meeting was that they were interested in doing the right thing and they were just kind of figuring out what the best way to do that was. And I think the pressure that has been put on them in the last year or so by campaigners and by NGOs I think really helped them get to the place that they wanted to be and that they needed to be a little bit faster than they might have on their own. When you met with them in May 2012, how did that go? Did you give suggestions for how to do it, or were you, um, and did they keep you in the loop? Did you meet with them afterwards? 
so we that 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 initial meeting was kind of more just something to allow us to acquaint ourselves with what they were thinking, and we did share some of our thoughts. But we said in the meeting, you know, we aren't food scientists, we aren't the experts on the supply chain. Um, if that's something that you're interested in hearing from our experts, we're happy to connect you, but we didn't have that information and we didn't feel comfortable presenting that information right off the front. So we kind of said, you know, we support deforestation from supply chains and we think this is what you really should be looking at, but we didn't necessarily make any sort of formal proposal or pitch to them there. And we did continue to stay in contact with Diane Holdorf, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer of Kellogg. We had a couple phone calls with her and would exchange some emails and one of the things that we were really interested in seeing is how they could help us impact Girl Scout cookies because the Girl Scouts weren't really willing to change their policy or take action on this issue. And so we were hoping that if Kellogg's took action on this issue, you know, that's half of Girl Scout cookies, forest friendly right there. Um, we actually got to meet Diane a second time. We delivered um, a bunch of petitions from an organization called Some of Us. They gathered petitions online, and there were over 100,000 signatures. And so we drove up to the headquarters and were able to deliver those to Diane. And their uh, announcement of their new policy came pretty quickly after all that campaigning occurred. So we've definitely enjoyed a really positive relationship with Kellogg. It's, it's not as close of a working relationship as ours with the Girl Scouts previously had been, but it definitely was a lot more beneficial and respectful and, I think, positive. Wow. So this online petition, what did you say it was called? It was run by an organization Okay, I, I'm giving you a terrible timeline of things, but um, basically, so we did we did our campaigning with the Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts announced their policy in September of 2011, and we kind of pressed for the next year to draw up support for this to show them that their consumers still cared and that they wanted people to take stronger action on this than the policy currently was. Um, and as that sort of died down, as we realized that the Girl Scouts weren't budging, that's when the focus sort of shifted more to Kellogg, and that's when we had our meeting with Kellogg. And after our meeting, within the next year, um, bigger environmental organizations decided to target catalogs. And so one of those was an organization called Forest Heroes, and they actually placed campaigners in Michigan to target catalogs and to do different rallies and educate the Michigan public about this, this issue. And through Forest Heroes, we had worked with one of the directors before and knew him pretty closely. He connected us to another organization that they were working with called Some of Us. S-U-M-O-F-U-S. And what Some of Us does is these really effective online petitions. And so some of us had developed a petition targeting Kellogg's, encouraging them to adopt a better policy. And because we were in Michigan at the time, it just made sense for us to go and deliver those petition signatures in person as opposed to them just mailing them in. Wow. Now, with Kellogg's announcement, that happened in February. Is that right? Right. So what happens What happens now? Because it takes a little time before it's implemented. The end of 2015, is that right? I believe so, yes. That sounds right. And so does that make Girl Scout cookies, in fact, half deforestation-free? <laughs> and which ones? <laughs> once, yeah. Once that policy is put into place, all of the cookies that are baked by little brownie bakers, who Kellogg's own, will be covered under that deforestation-free policy and will be forest-friendly. So the issue is that the other half of cookies are baked by ABC bakers, who are owned by George Weston, the Canadian company. Those will not be, because those cookies are still bound under the Girl Scouts policy and under George Weston's policy, neither one of which is deforestation-free at this time. So it's going to be really interesting because 
it's sometimes hard to tell which baker bakes your cookies because it goes by region. So you, people, consumers, would really have to check the box and look for either a little brownie baker, a uh, stamp for the ABC baker stamp to know whether the cookies they're buying are forest friendly or not. So it's not a particular um, kind of cookie that one company bakes or another. It's a regional thing. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so, for example, like there's however many, seven or eight different types of Girl Scout cookies. Little Brownie Bakers bakes all of those cookies for their region, and then ABC Bakers bakes all of those cookies for their region. Making it even more frustrating as a consumer. Exactly. That's one of the interesting things. We did, um, Maddie and I spoke on a panel in Colorado uh, about a year ago, and the point of our panel was to talk about how these companies exploit complexity to benefit themselves, because it's so hard to sort through, like, how is palm oil labeled, who is baking this product, things like that. And so I think for a long time, companies have got away with contributing to these environmental and social issues, because it's so complex that it's hard to sort through and figure out what exactly is happening. And so as a consumer, what's one to do, (laughs) I guess? Are there any (laughs) guides? I mean, I know I've been searching to try and find some different guides, and I've found some guides that will, you know, list all the derivatives Mm-hmm. But a lot of the derivatives, it's like just what you were saying with the sodium lauryl sulfate is that it could be palm oil, but it might not be. Right. And you don't actually know, even if you find that on the label, that may or may not be the case that it's palm oil. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really hard as a consumer. Easiest ways for consumers to start is with the easily identifiable um, things that come from palm oil, palm oil, palm kernel oil, things like that. But I think the other thing to remember, and I myself have a hard time doing this, is that the burden shouldn't be on the consumer. It should be on the company. So you don't necessarily need to know all of the derivatives of palm oil and identify which product they're on. If you write a letter to the company and say, this is the issues that palm oil is contributing to. I don't want to support these issues. Please remove you know, deforestation causing palm oil from your derivatives. Please switch to deforestation sources. They should be able to figure out through their companies and their suppliers which derivatives they're purchasing that contain palm oil and where that palm oil is coming from. You know, I think that they're right now using complexity to their advantage, but we should just turn that right back around on them and say, we know that you're using derivatives that can contain palm oil. We don't want you to be using unsustainable palm oil. Please adopt a stronger policy. Then they themselves have to take action on this issue. That's really good advice. I wish I remembered it more often. You know, I tell myself that and I really try to take it to heart, but it's hard sometimes when... You know, you're in a Target looking at shampoos and trying to figure out which ones contain palm oil because you don't necessarily know. But I think it should be it should be up to the company to figure that out and to take action. The consumer shouldn't have to worry about that necessarily. So as consumers, we shouldn't feel silly writing to a company if we don't know for sure that they're on some list that's being targeted because they have palm oil. Just if we see it, we can go ahead and write and find out what right. their policy is. Exactly, because I think there's a lot of power in these organized campaigns. I mean, Maddie and I have a lot of experience putting things together where you do a petition and you'll get 70,000 signatures that will be sent to the Girl Scouts, or you'll organize a letter-writing campaign or things like that, and those are really effective. There's a lot of great organizations like Greenpeace that do uh, on-the-ground organizing, so they'll have people in tiger costumes or orangutans costumes protesting. And I think there's a lot of benefits to organized protesting, but consumers shouldn't underestimate the impact that their one single email has. Because even though they might be one person writing one email to a company saying, I don't know if you use palm oil, 
but if you do, please adopt this deforestation policy. As other consumers learn about this issue and as they continue to write letters, those multiply. And I think companies begin to take notice when they start to have hundreds and then thousands and hundreds of thousands of consumers contact them and say that this issue is important to them. So I think that definitely organic and grassroots organizing can have a huge impact also, and we should always remember that and not think that just our one email will be overlooked. Because I think it's easy to forget that. Just the fact that somebody took time out to write an email means they really, really care right. about it. And uh, I, think, I think a lot of people get discouraged when looking at an issue, especially one like Palmo that is so global and so far-reaching, because it's hard to figure out where to start. And you question whether what you do will have any impact on this huge, huge international industry. But Matt and I, for example, started really small. We had our homemade poster board. We were talking in Ann Arbor. And now we've graduated to this level where we have online campaigns that hundreds of thousands of people look at. We've given presentations all across the country to thousands of different youth and adults and Girl Scouts to everyone. And so I think that by starting small and growing big, you have a lot of potential to create something really powerful. And you shouldn't just stop in the beginning when you think, oh, it's too scary. I'm never going to accomplish anything. So how have you changed as a result of all this activism? (laughs) I started this project in sixth grade as an extremely shy, not particularly outspoken little girl. And I think through this, I've really grown up into a young woman. I've developed a lot of confidence and a lot of courage and leadership abilities And I think it's helped me realize that what I want to do with my life is continue to have an impact on other people and positively impact the environment and things like that. I think through this project, I grew up so much more quickly than many of my peers did in middle school and high school because they were focused on academics and athletics and performing and things like that that are really important. But I had the opportunity to go out in the real world and to experience some really hard things, but also some really exciting things, really empowering things. And I think that's made me a better person because of it. My high, school, my high school experience was definitely not typical. And in a lot of ways, I kind of regret that I didn't have that. But I think what has happened is so much more meaningful and has made such a bigger impact on me as a person that I don't mind sacrificing sleep and good grades and things like that that I kind of had to balance when I was doing <laughs> this project and going to school full time. Yeah, I was about to ask you, so how did your high school career, how was it different? I mean, it didn't, my, especially in high school, um, I actually lived overseas. I was living in China with my family, and I was still in Maddie, and I were working on a really small scale, so more in our local community, more small presentations, things like that, and it, it, it didn't really affect anything at all. And then 10th grade, when I returned back to the U.S. and we were together, is when we started making connections to people that were going to be able to help us bring this project to a national platform. And everything really began in the spring of my sophomore year, it was 2011, and we were able to be featured in several major media outlets. And so we were in the Wall Street Journal one day, and we had all these campaigns going on at the same time online. So everyone who saw us in the Wall Street Journal and in different media outlets could take action. And so we were in the Wall Street media, or the Wall Street Journal, and I was home that day from school. I was sick, and my phone just kept ringing because. You know, my home phone was listed in the directory, and people would call, and they'd be like, oh, this is Good Morning America. We're interested in bringing you onto the show, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that was really exciting to see how many people cared about this issue. And so Maddie and I went to New York for a couple days, and that's when we met the Girl Scouts for the first time. But we also did interviews at Fox News. We did interviews for ABC World News, the CBS Early Show. We were on NPR. 
we did this satellite media tour where we sat in a room and were linked up to 17 different stations around the U.S. So we did 17 interviews back-to-back one morning, um, which was a really interesting experience. Oh, my and gosh, that's so funny. That's, that's, that's when people started knowing about us. That's when we started getting requests to speak um, around the country at different events. We got invited. We went to Columbia for a week to learn about the human rights abuses that are occurring because of palm oil in South America. And that's when our project really became to take up more of our time. You know, we became a lot more busy. We had a lot more commitments and things like that. And so as all of that happened, um, I would say I, I sort of put myself in this interesting position where I took a really challenging course load in school my 11th grade year. But I was also missing school every other week. I think in the fall we were gone at least once every other week doing different things. So I wasn't in class. And I was playing all this touch up, you know, we would be doing homework on planes, like flying somewhere to speak, things like that. And it, it was interesting. It was really hard. Like we missed a lot of things in high school, you know, things that don't seem like a big deal, but like, oh, a special dress day or this special event that happens once a year and things like that. And so it was kind of weird because it was like one, one part of me was in high school, but then the other part of me was traveling around and speaking to people and doing conference calls on my lunch hour. Um, so it was a really interesting balance of the two. And it wasn't sort of your typical, you go to school every day from 8 to 3, you go to softball, you come home and do your homework kind of thing, Um, which sometimes I definitely did really miss that. But overall, I think it was a worthwhile and it was a really interesting way to go through high school. And has it affected what you want to do with your life now or what you want to study? Yeah, it really has. This project has made me realize the impact that businesses have on the environment and on communities and on animals. And I think I've been able to see how positively businesses can impact these things, you know, because they are the ones purchasing raw materials and they're the ones with tons of money to donate into different projects and things like that. And so although I'm not exactly sure what I want to do with my life, I'm going to Stanford next year to study international relations. And my theory right now is, my hope, we'll see, is that maybe I can use that to go into some sort of consulting because I think it would be really interesting to work with companies on their social responsibility policies, on their supply chains, looking at how they can do what they need to do and still run an effective business while not contributing to environmental and social issues. Well, I'm just really impressed, and I'm I'm motivated by just <laughs> chatting with you. It doesn't take a lot, and it seems like something everybody can do. Write a letter... <laughs> And that's that's what Maddie and I try to tell youth, especially when we talk to them. That's one of our favorite audiences, is that we tell them there's nothing special about either Maddie or I. We just have something that we are passionate about, and we started to work on it, and we continued, and we didn't give up, and we are just where we are today. You know, we didn't have any sort of amazing resource, any sort of special skill that no one else has. We were just two normal 7th grade, 6th grade kids who saw something that we wanted to do and followed that. And I think that a lot of youth have a lot of passion. And as they start to follow them, I think that that means good things for this planet. What's next for you? You're heading to Stanford next year in the fall. I am. Maddie and I are in a really interesting transition time right now. She she started college last year, and I'll be starting this fall. And I think we're we're starting to grow out of our roles as Girl Scouts and out of our out of our roles as youth. Um, we finished the Girl Scout program when we graduated from high school. And although we are lifetime members, it isn't necessarily the same thing. And so I think we're just trying to figure out a way to incorporate these issues and this project that we've worked on for so long into our lives as we move forward. 
And I think we both kind of made the decision that having a college experience is really important to us. Um, you know, being on campus, doing things like that. We are traveling. We're going to an event in North Carolina um, in October, so we are traveling a little bit still. But I think we're really trying to cut down on this issue and figure out how can we best support the people that we know, the people that are working on this issue while sort of maintaining balance in our own lives. So what advice would you have for anyone who's passionate about whether it be orangutans or gorillas or elephants or or whatever? I think my biggest advice to anyone who has a passion is to start somewhere and just act on that passion. Even if it's as small as writing a letter, even if it's just speaking to three friends about this issue, start going and think of ways to build up what you're doing, to build momentum for your cause, because big things start small, everything starts somewhere. And I think something else that's interesting to keep in mind is that your passion doesn't necessarily have to be a species, or it doesn't necessarily have to be something environmentally related. Maddie has this really cool exercise that she put together, and maybe she can explain it a little bit better, but you put what you're passionate about in the middle of a circle, and then you ask yourself, how can I either help this or share it with others? Although I've seen her do it with things like video games or things like, you know, uh, sharing my dog with a nursing home or things like that because anything you're passionate about can be transformed into a really exciting, really motivating advocacy or service project. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, no problem. I really enjoyed chatting. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rhiannon Tomtishan, a teen activist working to get companies to source their palm oil from deforestation-free sources to save the orangutan and other endangered species. I'm Laurel Nimi, and this has been The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. Thanks for listening.